Well, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this evening. We are grateful, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your grace, and the presence of your Spirit. May he lead us and guide us as we look in your word, even as we have sung songs of praise to your name. So thank you for this time that we have. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Uh, This evening we're going to take a look at paragraphs 101 through 106. And that's covering pages one, starting at page 119. And if you don't have the harmony, we're looking in our Bibles at John chapter 10. In, in this book, it's page 119 in the harmony. If you do not have the harmony of the, of the Gospels or the Good News, uh, you're looking at John chapter 10 verses 1 to 22. In the outline, this is a section 5, which is entitled, The Opposition to the King. And in this section, we're dealing with his, this conflict over the shepherd. In John chapter 10, here we have the sixth of John's seven discourses. And this particular discourse, or good news account, or, or I should say teaching, is his discourse on the good shepherd. And this discourse is based on Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. Let me read those pa- that passage to you. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10 and uh, 11. Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm he will carry the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing hues. So now Yeshua is going to say that he is the good shepherd. In a sense, this is a claim to deity as well as the claim to his messiahship. If you take a look at John chapter 10 verses 7 and 8, you'll notice also we find the third of Yeshua's I am statements. In verse 7 he says, Yeshua therefore said unto them again, Verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. In verse 9 he says, I am the door. By me if any man enter in, he shall be saved. So in verse 7 and then verse 9 we have the third of the seven I am statements that Yeshua records. I am the door of the sheep. Then if you look at verse 11 and then again in verse 14, we have the fourth of the seven I am statements. Here he says, I am the good shepherd. So in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. As we look at these verses, in verses 1 to 6, we have Messiah who is presented as the good shepherd. In verse 1, Yeshua says, Verily I say unto you, He that enters not by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and robbers. He's making reference to the Pharisees. He's saying the Pharisees have taken authority, but they are false shepherds, and they've taken authority in the wrong way. In verse 2, Yeshua says, But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Yeshua says he came in the right way in fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures, in fulfillment of what the prophets said the Messiah would do. 
The Pharisees have arrogated authority unto themselves. They are like what the prophets refer to as the false shepherds that scatter the flock. Here he says they are false shepherds because they have arrogated authority to them in a way that is not theirs. Yeshua, on the other hand, came in the right way. What is the right way? The right way is he fulfilled what the scriptures said the Messiah would do. So what he does is in accordance with what the Old Testament prophets said Messiah would do. And the prophet who said the most about Messiah being the good shepherd is Zechariah. If you take a look at Zechariah chapter 11, he has a whole section dealing with Messiah as the shepherd of his flock. Zechariah is the second to the last of the minor prophets. And in chapter 11, beginning of verse 4, Thus says the Lord my God, Pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. They're taking advantage of the sheep rather than shepherding them properly. Rather than laying down their lives as a good shepherd would for the sheep, they are taking advantage of them. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, but behold, I will cause the men to fall each into another's power and into the power of his king. They will strike the land. I will not deliver them from their power. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. Of the flock. And throughout this section, he's going to make reference to Israel as the sheep. Messiah is to be that good Shepherd, But Yeshua speaks in parabolic language. In verse 6, he says, A stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable, Yeshua spoke unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spoke unto them. This is in fulfillment or further elaboration of what transpired back in paragraph 64. Where because of Israel's rejection of Yeshua as Messiah, he speaks to them in parables. Those that know Yeshua will understand the parables or it will be explained to them. Those that do not know Yeshua, it further confuses them regarding who he is. For as a nation, Israel has rejected them. That goes back to paragraph 61. So Messiah is presented as the good shepherd, the one who comes to the sheep and into the door, the door of the sheep fold the right way. In verses 7 to 10, the Messiah is the true door. Yeshua says, verse 8, I am the door of the sheep. He's the true door. And those who came before claiming to be Messiah or having the truth, he says, are thieves and robbers. He says this in verse 8, all that came before me are thieves and robbers. He is the true shepherd who, who has come to provide them with eternal life. He says in verse 10, I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly. In verses 11 through 18, Yeshua further characterizes himself not only as the true door, but now as the good shepherd. What characterizes the good shepherd is that he lays down his life for the sheep. And so in verse 11 he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so thus he has a flock 
in the present area, Yeshua says. He's laying down his life for this flock of sheep that exist at this time, at this place where Yeshua is ministering. The area, of of course, is Israel. He's referring to Jewish believers in the land of Israel. What will later be described by Paul more clearly and has been alluded to in the Hebrew Scriptures, particularly during the day of Elijah, as the faithful remnant of that day. When he says, I laid down my life for the sheep, he's talking about Jewish people, Jewish believers in him. They are the faithful remnant of that day. Paul will clarify this idea later in his letters, particularly the book of Romans in Romans chapter 11. But he says, Paul will tell us that Jewish believers and Gentile believers are one in Messiah. Here in John chapter 10, this idea of Jews and Gentiles being united together in Messiah is not clear. But there's a hint of it in what Yeshua goes on to say in verse 16. But in verse 11, he's speaking about Jewish believers. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. He says, I laid down my life for the sheep. Those sheep are those in this fold in Israel who are Jewish believers in the time of Messiah. But in verse 16, he says, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. The this fold are the Jewish believers of Yeshua's day and signify Jewish believers throughout the remaining history of uh, until Messiah comes. But the other sheep are of of another fold. The other sheep or the other fold are the Gentiles who will come to faith later as a result of the ministry of these Jewish believers, those early disciples and apostles that will go out and bring the gospel into all the world. So Jewish and Gentile believers are one flock. They have one shepherd. This fold is the Israel of God. This fold is the faithful remnant. The this fold are the Jewish believers. The other sheep or the other fold outside this territory, we might say, are Gentile believers who will yet come to know him. That's why he says in verse 16, there are other sheep I have which are not of this fold, but I must bring them and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock and I will be their one shepherd. He's already giving us an allusion, a hint to this unitedness between Jewish and Gentile believers. Paul in the book of Ephesians will say the two together become one new man or one new entity. They will be known as the ecclesia, the called out ones. What we know in English as the church or what we would prefer to refer to as the congregation of believers, the body of Messiah. In verse 18, Yeshua says, He lays down His life for the sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of myself. Later He will say, I lay it down freely. No one takes it away from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. So in verse 18, He lays down His life for the sheep. The argument with respect to who killed Messiah is ultimately a mute issue because here Messiah says he lays down his life. He says, I lay it down of myself. There may have been um, 
instrumental causes for the death of Messiah that involve individuals. But ultimately, he has given his life as a ransom for sin. He lays it down of himself. I suppose if Yeshua wanted to, he could have hung on the cross forever. In other words, he chooses the moment of his own death. What's also interesting here is that these are also allusions or indications of his deity. When he says, I lay down my life, well we know that scripture tells us that all of our deaths are in the hand of God, we might say. All of us have a certain amount of years allotted to us. And when those years are up, we will die. The question is, who allots those years to us? It is God. So when Messiah says, I lay it down of myself, he's making a claim to deity. He has control over his death, which is something only God has. On the other hand, he says, I can take my life back again. So now the question is, how does a dead man get his life back? Or to put it another way, how does a dead man raise himself from the dead back to life? Earlier, Yeshua said that very thing in John chapter 2. He said that, uh, how did he put it? He said, uh, oh, let me, oh, and I don't have the Gospels here. If I'm making reference to when they said, um, we have built this temple and you said in three days, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Isn't that John chapter? Right, John chapter 2, verse 19. Yeshua said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so the question is, how does a dead man raise himself to life after three days? Unless he has life in himself. So these are claims to his own deity. He says, I lay down my life. That's something that only God can determine. And on the other hand, he says, I take my life back. Another uh, thing that only God can do. And then in verses 19 through 21 of, cha- of John chapter 10, we find this division emerges. In John, verse 19, it says, There arose a division again among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, He has a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the sayings of one possessed with a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Notice in verse 20, the charge of being demonized is not only coming from the leaders as it did earlier when he healed the man that was blind and couldn't speak or, or deaf and couldn't speak. Now we find that the multitudes are starting to, to um, pick up on this mantra that the leaders have charged Yeshua with, that he was demonized. So it's coming from the multitudes and not just the leaders. But in verse 21 we find that there were others who were saying, how could one who is possessed of a demon say such wonderful things? And so there's a division. In paragraph 102, which is found in Luke chapter 10 verses 1 to 24, we have the witness and the ministry of the 70. We have to keep in mind that in addition to the 12 disciples, that is that intimate, close, apostolic group that was us, that surrounded Yeshua, he also had another 70 who would be called on by Messiah for special services, for special tasks, or for special missions. Here they are called upon for a special and specific mission. 
Look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. Now after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to come. Notice in verses 1 to 16, the 70 are sent out for a temporary mission. Their purpose is to prepare a place for Yeshua and his disciples to stay as he passed through the various cities en route to Jerusalem. Note they say that they are only to go to the places Yeshua will travel through. Notice he says, he sent them two by two before his face in every city and place where he himself was about to come. These 70 are to do the following. Look at verse 2. First of all, they are to pray. He says unto them, The harvest is plenteous, the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, he send forth, that he sends forth laborers into his harvest. So the 70 are sent out for this temporary mission. And first of all, they are to pray, and they are to be willing to answer their own prayer. As they pray for laborers, they are to be those laborers as well. In verse 4, they are warned of being rejected by unbelievers. I send you forth as lambs in the midst of wolves. In verse 5, he tells them that they are not to be concerned about provisions. These will be provided by believers as they proceed through their mission. In verse 5 he says, carry no purse, no wallet, no shoes. Salute no one. Don't stay with anyone except with those who embrace you. Those that uh, are a people of peace, he says. If a son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon him. Verse 6 and 7. So fourthly, so first they're to pray. Secondly, they're forewarned that they're going among many who will reject them. Thirdly, they're not to be concerned with provisions. They will be provided those provisions by believers as they proceed. In verse 6, once they find an acceptable place to stay, they should look no further. If a son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon him. And in that same house remain. Verse 7. And then verse 10, he says, Do good to those who accept you, but announce judgment on those who will reject you. And so in verse 13 or so, we have some of these, or Yeshua tells them, some of the cities upon which they are going to be pronouncing judgment. Woe unto Chorazin, woe unto Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done such as in Tyre and Sidon were done there, they would have repented. In other words, the judgment is pronounced because the Lord has done many miracles there and they're rejecting those miracles. So like the sending of the twelve earlier, they are admonished in the same way. But here, rather than doing a ministry of evangelism, you might say, proclaiming the kingdom of Messiah, they are to prepare places for him to stay. And so in verse 16, he tells them, those who reject you are ones who have rejected me. So the people's rejection of these 70 is an indication that they have already rejected Messiah. Notice that the 70 are sent out two by two in verse 1. Therefore, they will go to a minimum of 35 different places for Yeshua to stay. 
We're not told of all those places he stays and what transpires, but he must have stayed at, at uh, a minimum of 35 different places in his journey to Jerusalem. Secondly, in verses 17 to 20, we have the report of the 70 when they return. In verse 17, we're told that the 70 return with great joy. And the reason for this great joy is because wherever they went, they found communities of believers. And places have been prepared for Yeshua and the twelve disciples. They also tell us in verse 17 that they found demons to be subjected to them in Yeshua's name. They were able to cast them out. They say in verse 17, Lord, even the devils are subjected to us in your name. In verse 18, Messiah says that I beheld Satan falling as lightning from heaven. This is sort of a prequel of the final collapse of Satan that will take place at the end of time. He's already seeing the beginnings of that. Because as these disciples are casting out demons and as Messiah is making his presence known, it's as if Satan is losing some of his grasp where he once had it and he's seeing him fall like lightning and so in verse 20 Yeshua reminds them however that they are not to rejoice that the demons are subjected to them he says I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions which I think are are sort of allegorical terms metaphors for demons and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall in any wise hurt you however in this rejoice, not that the spirits are subjected unto you, and that's why I think he's, he's definitely speaking of their power over demons. He says, rather than rejoicing that spirits are subjected unto you, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They are not to rejoice that demons are subjected to them, but, their name, that, that, but that their names are written in heaven. They should be excited about the gift of salvation they have, and similarly, that's what we should be overwhelmingly excited about, is this, that our names are written in heaven. This is a good passage to think about in light of the fact that next Wednesday, here at 7, we celebrate Rosh Hashanah. And remember, we celebrate that our names are written eternally in the Lamb's book of life by His own blood. L'shana tova tekatevu. May you be inscribed for a good year. So we are to rejoice that we are inscribed for goodness and that ultimately our destiny is with the Lord and with him forever so that in verses 21 to 24 we have Messiah's prayer in verse 21 notice how he begins in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit I think it's kind of neat that it states he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and when we pray we also are to rejoice in the Holy Spirit. Even when we pray intercessorily for people's needs or have challenges of our own, remember these 70 were going among those that would reject them. Certainly not every place they went did they find reception. They were, he was told that he's sending them as lambs among wolves. Yet when they return, it is not their experience among the wolves that dominates their thinking, but rather the celebration. They come back with great joy, saying that the Lord's, uh, that places are provided for the Lord, and that 
even demons were subjected unto them. Yeshua then, when he turns and prays, he rejoices in the Holy Spirit over what has transpired. And we too need to rejoice over the, uh, in the Holy Spirit when we pray, even when there are concerns that we have uh, that we bring before the Lord. This Sunday I'm going to be speaking on Romans chapter 8. Verse, uh, you know, 26, 27, 28, where it says, All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. And so, whatever transpires in our lives, God has a good purpose in mind through it. And therefore, we can come in prayer, even in hard moments, with rejoicing. Because our names are written in the book of life, and whatever we go through, God has a good purpose in mind for us. We're going to talk about that this coming Sunday. He emphasized in his prayer now, he emphasizes unbelief because the people to whom he has revealed himself as Messiah have failed to recognize him. He says, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you that you have hid these things from the wise and understanding. He's speaking about the Jewish leaders the Pharisees, what are referred to as lawyers, the theological experts of his day, but you revealed them unto babes. The reason why they did not see is because they did not recognize Yeshua as Messiah. They didn't recognize him as Messiah because they were interpreting the word of God inappropriately, wrongly. They were interpreting it through a Pharisaical and Mishnaic grid through an oral tradition which hid Messiah from them in the interpreting of the text. The text had him there, but their theological grid and their traditions were uh, camouflaging what was being said. But that did not keep God from opening the hearts of some, and thus he rejoices that those who were babes, those who were not educated in the synagogues as such, or the uh, rabbinical schools, those that were not uh, trained in this Pharisaical or Mishnaic uh, method, those were the babes, the seemingly immature and the innocent. God has opened their hearts. It's not that these men didn't know the Bible. In the first century, all Jewish boys were taught God's word from when they were five and even before, up until their adulthood. The difference for the disciples were they were not engrossed in the Pharisaical interpretation. And thus they had the word, as it were, unadulterated before them. And God opened their heart to it. So how could Israel, how could these Jewish leaders fail to recognize Yeshua since they had the scriptures? The problem was the scripture was being tempered by how it was interpreted. And it was being interpreted through this Pharisaical and Mishnaic grid that was hiding what it had to say about Messiah. And that goes on to this day. And so this interpretation of the Hebrew text was not the result of what the text said in and of itself, but rather what was understood by this method of interpretation which hid Messiah from those who would otherwise read it. In verse 24, Yeshua says, this is the unique advantage of the disciples. They understood the text of the scripture as it, as it is, not as it was interpreted by the Jewish leaders of his day. Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. 
For I say unto you that many prophets and kings desired to see these things which you see, but did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear, but have not heard them. In paragraph 103, we have this conflict over eternal life. We're looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Notice in verse 25, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him or tested him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when the, the Hebrews, when the uh, Brit Tadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, speak of a lawyer, they're speaking of one who's an expert in the Scriptures, especially with respect to the Mosaic Law. So that's why the, the King James inter- interpreted or translated as lawyers. What they mean are experts in the Mosaic Law. We're not talking about DAs or defense attorneys. We're talking about experts in understanding the Mosaic Law. And here there was an attempt to trap Yeshua theologically. Attempting to prove that he was not well versed in scripture in general and in the law in particular. So notice he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this word do is the key phrase, key term. In Greek, it's in the aorist tense. The aorist tense, we don't have such a tense in English, means that the action takes place in a point of time and then it has eternal ramifications. His question is, what is the one thing once and for all in a point in time that I must do that I can have eternal life forever? What is the one work that will guarantee that I have eternal life? So his question is focusing on that one thing that he must do in order to have eternal life. Verse 27, Yeshua responds. And notice, because he's talking to one who is claiming to be an expert in the law, he draws his attention to the law that he's to be an expert in. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you understand it? And the man answers, one must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and with all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. And of course, the man answers correctly. So Yeshua says in verse 28, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. Now when the, when the, the, um, the uh, Mosaic scholar asked, <clears throat> what's the one thing I can do that will give me eternal life? Yeshua tells him, <clears throat> what does the law say? He answers correctly, but notice when Yeshua says, Do, there's the focus on the word do again. Do this and you will live. Yeshua does not answer in the aorist tense. He answers in the present tense. Which means keep on doing this and keep on doing this consistently. Of course, this Jewish man, this expert in the law, knows he cannot do this consistently 
and that he cannot do this ongoingly because he's a sinner and he's going to fail to ongoingly love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength and his neighbor as himself consistently and on a regular basis. So he knows that he can't do this one thing which is an ongoing thing which could lead, would lead to eternal life. So in verse 29, the lawyer knows this. So in order to get around this issue of him not being able to do this consistently, he tries what might be referred to as a trick question. How do you define one's neighbor? Now keep in mind, in the Pharisaical tradition of its day, the Jewish uh, leaders understood that their neighbor is one that understood the scripture as they understood it. So a neighbor to them was not just another Jew, it was another Pharisee like themselves. So he's saying, Yeshua, he's asking Yeshua, so how do you define a neighbor? To define a neighbor, Yeshua tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And you remember the story where there is a Jewish man who has been taken over by robbers and has been robbed and beaten and left for dead in verse 31. He's not dead, he's half dead, so he's unconscious and he appears dead. And he tells them that a priest and a Levite walked by. Now according to the Mosaic law, priests and Levites could not touch a dead body. So they may have assumed wrongly that the man was dead and they couldn't go over to him because he was dead. But the story that is told does not mention that they even try to check to see if the man truly is dead. For if he's not dead, they would have an obligation to help him. But they don't check and they move on and go on their way. However, a Samaritan comes by. Of course, he could touch the man and he does. But his actions are entirely contrary to the entire Samaritan culture of that time. Because just as Jews avoided Samaritans, Samaritans avoided Jews. But not this particular Samaritan who would go up to this Jewish person. And notice in verse 34 what Yeshua tells us about the Samaritan. First of all, he's not just doing his duty. But in verse 4 he was moved with compassion. In other words, he loved this man, that he was willing to help him. That's key because one must love God with all your one's heart, soul, mind, and strength, but one must also love his neighbor, not just fulfill his obligations to his neighbor, but love his neighbor, the scripture says. And this Jewish man knows he's not going to be loving one who's not a Pharisee like himself. And so Yeshua tells us this man was moved with compassion. And his compassion is expressed in tangible deeds. So what does he do? First of all, in verse 34, he bound up the man's wounds. So he took care of him. Secondly, in binding up his wounds, he also attempted to deal with him tenderly and in a healing manner. So he poured oil and wine. Of course, oil is extremely expensive in this day as well as in the first century. And he also gave up some of his wine. And then he 
places him on his own animal. He exchanges places with him. This man must have been on his donkey or whatever it was, and he's riding, and now this man is ill, so he's going to put him on the donkey and he's going to walk. So he's even sacrificing him, his own self as he's going to guide this donkey with this man that's bound up and tenderly cared for with oil and wine. And he brings him to an inn. And then once he brings him to an inn, he tells the proprietor to take care of him. And then he pays out of his own pocket for the man, the innkeeper, to to take care of him so he can stay and he can feed him. And then he tells him any other expenses he incurs, take care of him to that extent and I will pay you further for it. So in verse 36, Yeshua asks this expert in the law, who was the man's neighbor? And of course the priest was not his neighbor. And the Levite was not his neighbor, but the Samaritan was. Notice how the Samaritan responds. The Samaritan does not say, uh, the expert in the law does not say, the Samaritan was his neighbor. He can't get himself to even say the word Samaritan. He says, the one that showed mercy. A very abstract expression. He doesn't say the Samaritan, the wonderful man, the good man. He just says the one that showed mercy. In his response, he is revealing his lack of love for his neighbor. And if he does not consistently love his neighbor, then he has no guarantee of entering into heaven or eternal life. So, in answer to the question... Or when he says, he who showed mercy, Yeshua says, go and do likewise. Love everyone. So who is one's neighbor? One's neighbor is one who ever has a need that you can meet. That is your neighbor. That's what Yeshua is saying. Whoever has a need for which you can meet it or make a difference, that one is your neighbor. In paragraph 104, we have the example of fellowship. We're looking at Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Notice Luke, the writer, that he is one who is concerned with the role of women in the life of Messiah. He is oftentimes making reference to women engaged uh, in ministering to, with, or being healed or forgiven by Messiah. One of the homes prepared for Messiah by the 70 that he had sent out earlier happens to be a home in Bethany. Bethany is a little village near Jerusalem located on the lower eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. In this home are two sisters, Miriam, Mary, and Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. And we'll read more of them later in the life of Messiah. When the 70 came through, these three individuals were ones who embraced two that came to their home, two of Yeshua's disciples. And this was a home of 
peace. And there were people of peace. And thus they made that home ready for Messiah to pass through. The two sisters, when they hear Messiah is coming, prepare to welcome the Messiah. They want him to come into their home and they want their home to be ready for him. Martha is particularly concerned with having everything ready. When Yeshua gets to the home, look at verse 38. Now as they went on their way, he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at the Lord's feet and heard his word. But Martha was encumbered about much serving. And so Martha wants to make sure the house is ready. Messiah comes. They greet him. He comes into the house. He starts talking. And Mary decides, I'm sitting right here and I'm going to listen to every word he has to say. Martha, on the other hand, is saying, everything's not in order yet. The food is not cooked or things are not cleaned or his place where he's going to sleep is not ready. And she's running around trying to get everything finalized and prepared. And so Martha begins to get frustrated. And she asks Yeshua to scold Mary and to tell her to help Martha with the chores. So if you look at verse 40, Martha was encumbered and she came up to him, Yeshua, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her that she should help me. But the Lord responds... Messiah responds and says in verse 41, It is far more important to be occupied with the Messiah than merely being occupied for the Messiah. It is far more important, important to be taught by Messiah than to be preparing a meal for the Messiah. It's a good lesson for us. It's more important that we are engaging Messiah than serving Him. So we need to make sure that our life, or in our life, there is time set aside where we are with Him. Whether it means we take a walk and we just talk with Him. Whether it means we sit down, read His Word, and talk with Him. One of the struggles I oftentimes have is that when I open up God's Word, it's hard for me to just read the Word and allow the Lord to speak to me in any way that He might want to through His Word. My initial reaction is to start getting out all my tools and all my books and so on and start trying to understand exactly what's there. And in a sense, I move from that mode of dwelling with the Lord to serving Him. Because when I get into the mode of study so as to teach, that's part of the process of my serving Him. I serve Him by studying His Word so I can be prepared to teach His Word, which is also my service to Him. Sometimes those two areas can get blurred. It did for Martha. She was more concerned with serving rather than seeing her service as a means to dwelling with Him. And so sometimes we need to put down what we're doing and simply enjoy His presence and be receiving from Him. That was Martha's challenge. And by the way, every time we read of Mary, we'll see that she's sitting at the feet of Yeshua. In paragraph 105, which is Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13, we have Messiah's instructions concerning prayer. 
This is very much like his words given on the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, we had Messiah's interpretation of the true righteousness of the law. In contrast with how the Pharisees understood the law. In the Judaism of the first century, and still true to this day, no one really prays their own prayers. All prayers were and are formulated into the Siddur today or the prayer book. So there really is no such thing in Judaism and there really was no such thing in Judaism as extemporaneous prayer per se. That's not to say that it never happens, but it is to say it's not typical and descriptive of how Jewish people pray. But the disciples have noticed that when Messiah prayed, he never prayed these prescribed prayers. He never prayed out of a siddur. He simply looked up to heaven, opened his eyes, looked to heaven, and would address the Lord as his Father. And thus they were moved by this, and so they asked Yeshua to teach them to pray. They go one step further, they say, teach us to pray, even as John taught his disciples to pray. So they saw something familiar about Yeshua's praying and as well as John's praying. They were very similar in how they prayed. And so the disciples say, when they see Yeshua pray, they say, you know, he prays like John. So they say, teach us to pray, even like John taught his disciples how to pray. So his instruction on prayer here is the same as his instructions on the Sermon on the Mount. It is an outline of how we are to pray. And so the things that we said uh, in that section are applicable to this section as well. And I think this is the instruction Messiah would have us follow today when we pray. So when we pray, we pray unto the Father. Like Messiah, always pray to the Father. Always addresses Him as Father. There's no place in the uh, Good News accounts where when Yeshua prays, He never addresses Him as Father. He always addresses Him as Father. The only time He does it is on the cross when He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other place, He doesn't say... Uh, Holy One of Israel. He never says Lord. He always says Father. That doesn't mean we can't use these other terms and descriptions and names for God. But we have the privilege, like Messiah, to think of God as our Father. And thus Paul says we can cry Abba, Father, in uh, Romans chapter 8. But he says, we to address the Father, we speak of his character, hallowed be your name. We speak of his, and we pray about his coming kingdom, might your kingdom come. We pray about particular needs, and notice in the Lord's Prayer, what's referred to as the Lord's Prayer, maybe better referred to as the Disciples' Prayer, at this point, the prayer changes in its pronoun. In the first part, it says, when you pray, say our Father, Uh, hallowed be your name. Then when he changes the theme of prayer, it becomes first person plural. Give us day by day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone that is indebted to us and bring us not into temptation. 
So in the first part of the prayer, we're to address the Father. We pray, Lord, you are hallowed. You are holy. May your kingdom come. Then when we pray, we're to pray with respect to one another as well as ourselves. So that we pray, not just give me what I need, but provide for all of us what we need. Not only forgive me of my sin, but forgive us of our sins. And not merely protect me from temptation, but protect us. And so we pray to the Father about the Father, but we pray to the Father about our needs and one another. In a way that parallels what he said to this uh, legal expert on the Mosaic Law. Love the Lord with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you pray, you pray about God and what is true of Him and what He is doing in the world and then pray for one another. Love for God, love for others. We used to say we are to have a vertical relationship and a horizontal relationship. Vertical relationship with God, a horizontal relationship with others. We pray to God, to the Father about the Father. We pray about ourselves, not just me or us or or just me. But we pray about ourselves, horizontal and uh, vertical and horizontal. And we love the Lord with all our heart. We love our neighbor as ourselves. There's always these two directions, toward God and toward others. And so in uh, section 5, he goes on, not only does he instruct us about prayer, and he indicates prayer should not be prescribed, but it should not be haphazard either. And thus he gives us this outline. So that our prayer need not be prescribed, but it need not be without direction. And so in verses 5 to 13, Yeshua then provides a parable on prayer. And his purpose in this parable is twofold. Number one, to teach intercessory prayer, pray for others. But also to teach us to pray persistent prayers, persistently before the Lord. And the point of this parable is that if an unwilling individual will finally give in because of persistence, how much more so will our Heavenly Father who is willing to respond, respond to our persistent prayer? He's not suggesting that just as this unwilling friend is unwilling to help his friend unless he is a badgered to help. He's not saying God is unwilling and thus if you do not continue to ask Him, He won't help. He's making a contrast in that this individual who's unwilling to help will help when you pray, uh, when you ask Him persistently. Well then how much more so will our Heavenly Father who is looking to help will help us if we just ask Him. And thus He, t- he tells us in verse 9, nine Uh, It's in the present tense. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Because He's desirous of answering our prayer. He's not withholding anything from us. And that's what He tells us in verse 11. If we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give us good gifts? The imagery is that we have to keep knocking at Heaven's door to get what we want. The imagery is God is ready to give, so ask Him. And ask Him over and over again. Not by saying the same things as the Gentiles say, thinking that if we repeat repetitive prayers, God's going to answer. That's not what He's telling us. He's telling us we can always go to Him. But God has the right to say no, as He did to Paul. Three times He said, 
remove this thorn in the flesh. And the Lord said, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. But his persistence in prayer led him to receive an answer from God. So that the first time he said, okay, the Lord didn't take it away. I'm going to ask him again and I'll ask him again. And then the Lord responded to him by saying, I'm not taking this away. And therefore learn to trust my grace in the midst of your weakness. So we ought not to think that everyone who is ill, God is going to heal. We ought not to think that the reason people are ill is because we don't pray effectively enough or we don't pray persistently enough. And we ought not to think that people are ill because they lack faith. People are ill often because this is God's purpose for them. And He has something good to bring out of that illness. He did with Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. And that's what I want you to experience. My grace in an ongoing wrestling match with the issues that are in your life. When you think of the man who was born blind, we looked at that back in John chapter 9. Why is this man blind? Did he sin or did his family sin? Neither, but for the glory of God. This man was blind because God was going to glorify himself through healing him. But you know, some people are blind because God is going to glorify himself through their blindness as well. And so we need to be balanced in our understanding of God's word. And so when he tells us here to be persistent in prayer, not because our persistence is going to lead to necessarily the answers we want, but rather our persistence is a sign that we believe God is desiring to answer our prayer. Either yes, no, or maybe sometime in the future. But it will ultimately be a yes or a no. And thus we have to be ready to accept God's grace in whatever form it is. Think of Abraham. He said, Lord, if there are 50, will you destroy the city? 40, 30, 20, 10? But the Lord destroyed the city. Not because of his lack of prayer. This was God's will in light of the fact that there were not ten. I suppose if Abraham said, if there's one, he may have said, still said, I won't destroy the city because the one righteous man he brings out of the city, doesn't he? A lot. But the point is that this parable is to teach us to be persistent because God eagerly desires to answer our prayer. And here's another thing. In Romans chapter 8, I mentioned this uh, last week. Paul tells us, we do not know what we should pray for. Therefore, the Spirit of God is interceding for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Oftentimes, we think, as Paul did, take away this thorn in the flesh is the right thing, is the best thing, is the good thing. But that was not according to God's will. And that's what Paul says. We don't know what God's will. He doesn't tell us, this is what I'm going to do. Therefore, we pray. And we are grateful that the Spirit of God is interceding for us in accordance with what the will of God is because He knows what that will is. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more uh, this Sunday in service because it's a challenging issue. But it's one that is to be froth with hope and not despair. And so Yeshua is telling us, keep on asking, because God is desiring of connecting with us and answering. And here's the last thing. God is omniscient, right? He's all-knowing. And He knows what is best. 
Our desire is not that God would do our will. Our desire is that God will do His will and that we would be accepting of it rather than uh, fighting against it. I think sometimes we don't always know the whys, you know, uh, or we don't always know the whys until much later on as we can look back. That's certainly the story of Joseph, right? God meant, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. I don't know if when he was thrown into the cistern and then he was taken by the Ishmaelites or the Midianites, and then he's thrown into a slave as a slave to Potiphar, and then into prison. If he could have said, "God means this for good," I mean, maybe he believed that to be the case, but he did not know what that good thing would ultimately be until he's second in command in Egypt and he's able to be an influence for good. And now he looks back and he says, "Man, those were horrible experiences. I wouldn't wish them on anyway." But And he makes that clear because he says to the brothers, you did mean evil. You were not acting out of ignorance. You meant to harm me. And it was a harm that I experienced. But God meant it for a good purpose. And now I know what that good purpose is. We may not know this side of heaven what that good purpose is. Paul tells us in Romans 8, that all things work together for good, and he tells us what that good purpose is, which is conformity to the image of Messiah. So in some sense, that's the answer in everything. He's using everything to conform us to the image of his son. But in the particular moment and the specific detail, we may not know when it happens. We might know after looking back, or we may not know until we're in the presence of the Lord and he will uh, and at that point we will know what all the difficulties hurts and challenges certainly were about well all the fruit of the spirit right are characteristics of who Yeshua is And if we're being conformed to his image, the result should be the fruit of the Spirit, right? Hard things. It's easy to speak about academically, you know. It's when you go through it to be able to hold on to what we know. And by the way, Paul says that. We know that all things work together for good. We may not feel it. We may not understand it. We may not perceive it. But we know it to be true because his word tells us that. So true faith, or maybe a deeper faith, is not seen in holding on to something that's not going to happen. I'm going to claim this healing, I believe it, and if anyone says I'm not healed, I deny it. While they continue to limp or whatever it is that they do. That's not the measure of mature faith. The measure of mature faith is knowing God has a good purpose for whatever I go through. Even though I may not know what that purpose is, I know that he has a good purpose in mind for me.
And, and we know that ultimately it's being conformed to the image of His Son. Yeah. So, in uh, verse 9, he says, Keep on asking, if an earthly father is willing to give good gifts, how much more so is that true of our heavenly father? In verse 13, he makes this point, If you then, being uh, evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Prior to Acts 2, at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given to the body of believers in Jerusalem, prior to Acts 2, one would ask for the Holy Spirit. But since Acts 2, we receive the Holy Spirit the moment we believe. We don't have to ask for Him. If we know Yeshua as Messiah, we automatically have the Holy Spirit. And He indwells every believer. Because Yeshua said, He will not only be with you, He will be in you. In Acts chapter 2, all the believers in the upper room were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that has been true ever since that time. So what Yeshua is relating is, of course, He's living at a point in time prior to Acts 2. So in His day... Yes, one needed to ask for the Holy Spirit. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only indwelt some believers, not all. But now He indwells all believers. That's the unique promise Yeshua gave to us. The Holy Spirit is with you and will, future tense, will be in you. So the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is true of every believer. There's no believer who does not have the Holy Spirit indwelling in him. Because Yeshua, Paul will write, Romans 8, He who has not the Spirit is none of his. The Spirit of God, he says in Romans 8, leads us and guides us. It's one of the, uh, one of the evidences that one is a believer. He tells us one of the evidences that there's no condemnation for those that are in Messiah are those that are led by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. All that is in Romans chapter 8. So when Yeshua says to ask for the Holy Spirit, He's speaking at a point in time prior to Acts 2 when only some were indwelt. But now we are all indwelt. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Holy Spirit was in some believers and only temporarily. There was no permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was always temporary for a given purpose or a given task. But today, He's in all believers permanently. And thus, He is a seal of our salvation. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He seals us until the day of redemption. He can only do that if He's indwelling us. And that means He indwells us permanently, not temporarily. So one way to receive the Holy Spirit under the era that was dominated by the Mosaic Law was to ask Him. But the era of the law has come to an end. And so today, all believers are given the Spirit of God. In paragraph 106, which is Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 36, uh, we're going to go through the next two very quickly and we'll be done, is uh, the conflict over the healing of a mute man. It's similar to Matthew chapter 12, which is recorded in paragraph 61. He cast out a demon that caused a man to be mute. Thus, this is the second of the three messianic miracles. And the leaders begin to say he's demon-possessed. But notice in verse 14, 
this change. In Matthew 12, when the nation was led by the leadership to reject Messiah, the leaders say he's possessed by a demon. But now, in verse 14 of Luke chapter 11, it says, the multitudes are saying Messiah is demon-possessed. The people are beginning to parrot what the leaders have been saying. And so in verses 15 through 26, we have the repetition of what was said in paragraph 61 and 64 in Matthew chapter 12. But in verse 27, a new element is introduced. In verse 27 it says, And it came to pass, as he said these things, a certain woman out of the multitudes lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts that gave you suck. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. In paragraph 63, following on the heels of him fulfilling that messianic miracle initially, It said that his own mother and half-brothers spoke out about what transpired. Paragraph 63. Here, another woman cries out. But she says, how blessed the mother of Messiah must be. But Yeshua's response is to draw our attention to the importance of spiritual ties and not merely physical ties. More blessed are those that hear God's word and keep it. In verses 29 to 32, he repeats elements found in previous passages that we've already looked at. But in verse 33 to 36, Yeshua has a call to the nation. And so he says, No man, when he lights a lamp, puts it in a cellar, neither under a bushel, but on a stand, that they all might enter in and may see the light. And so he says, To accept Yeshua means to walk in the light. To reject him means to walk in darkness. And so he says, look, there, look therefore whether the light that is in you be not darkness. If therefore your whole body be full of light, having no part dark, it shall be wholly full of light, as when the lamp with its bright shining does give the light. Make sure the light that is in you is not darkness. The Jewish leaders of their day thought the light of scripture as they had it was light but it was actually darkness because of their failed attempts to interpret it correctly and so his call to the nation is to accept him as Messiah so as to walk in the light and then in paragraph 107 which is Luke chapter 11 verses 37 to 54 we have this conflict over a pharisaical ritualism. Look at verse 37. As he spoke, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And he went in and he sat down to meet. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not washed his hands before dinner. Verse 37. A, Yeshua invites, a Pharisee invites Yeshua to dinner. But the context seems to suggest that this was an attempt to trap him. Notice that Yeshua did not wash his hands. Yeshua's response in uh, verses 42 through 45 or so, we're going to look at in greater detail in paragraph 137, uh, which is Matthew chapter 23, where we have the seven woes that are pronounced upon the Pharisees and the scribes.
course, it's never good to have a woe pronounced uh, against you. So we'll look at that when we get to it. But the things Yeshua has said to the Pharisees has offended the lawyers also. Look at verse 45. He says, And one of the lawyers answered as he pronounces these woes. One of the lawyers, experts in the law, answered and said, Master, in saying this, you offend us also. So what does Yeshua say? Gee, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. He says in verse 46, Woe unto you also, for you put heavy burdens that others can't bear. So in verse 46, what they have done to deserve Yeshua's woe statement is they've reinterpreted the scripture and the law in such a way as to obscure its true meaning and intent. To obscure what it has to say about the coming Messiah. Thus they hide from the people what the law actually says. And thus in verse 52 Yeshua says, Woe unto you experts in the law, for you take away the key of knowledge. And that key of knowledge is the correct interpretation of the scripture which points to Yeshua as the fulfillment of of what the law and the prophets have said. So Yeshua condemns the Pharisees in general and these Mosaic scholars in particular. Verse 53 then says, And when he was come out from thence, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press upon him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him to catch something out of his mouth with with which they can entrap him. But, as we will see, they cannot entrap him and they cannot kill him unless he lays down his life freely and at the time he deems it uh, appropriate for him to die. Well, let's pray. And then if there are any questions, we'll take them. And if anyone needs to leave, uh, if it's getting late, I'm not sure what time it is, but if anyone needs to leave... If anyone needs to leave, uh, you can. Father, we thank you for this night, time of singing and praise to your name, and a time of learning from your word. May we be ones who do not obscure its truth, but rather see it correctly, understand it rightly, and find Yeshua throughout its pages, and that we, in finding him, are led to follow him, to obey him, to worship him, and to adore and love Him. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, any questions? Or uh, if anyone needs to go, please feel free to do so. Don't feel strange about that. See you, Jack.